welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 11 and episode 11 entitled Questions About Scripture. We're going to take as our main text Matthew 22 verses 34 to 46 and you'll find parallel accounts of this in Mark and Luke's Gospels as well. Well, we're coming towards the end of series 11, which describes some of the events that take place in the first half of the week in which Jesus spends in Jerusalem just prior to his crucifixion. If we take his crucifixion to be on the Friday, then the events of series 11 are taking place uh, on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and possibly into Wednesday of that week. It's a very short period of time into which is packed a lot of action and a lot of discussion and a lot of teaching and indeed a lot of conflict. If you've been following series 11, you'll see the picture developing and you'll you'll have a pattern in your mind of the sort of things that are happening. But I'm just going to go back a little bit just to make sure that all the context is clear for us before we actually move on to two major discussions about particular themes of scripture that are very important at this stage of Jesus' ministry. Well, series 10 took us on a significant part of the journey that Jesus was taking south to Jerusalem, a very premeditated decision to head to Jerusalem for a final confrontation with the religious authorities. And as I've said on many occasions, they had already decided that they were opposed to Jesus and were going to resist his claims to be the Messiah of Israel, the saviour of the world, the son of God. They were going to try and undermine his popular appeal to the Jewish nation. And it becomes clear later on that they were going to try and get rid of him, try to get him executed and removed from the country. However, the authorities, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, based in the temple and in Jerusalem, and all their associates in the different factions of the Jewish leadership, they have been on the defensive in the recent events that we've described in series 11. This is because of the popular appeal of Jesus at the time. It's notable that his raising from the dead of Lazarus out of his tomb in the village of Bethany, just a few kilometres from Jerusalem. It's noticeable that that had a big impact on public perception amongst the people who lived in the area. They were in awe of Jesus' amazing, miraculous power. It's also notable that a crowd was travelling with him as he came to Jerusalem from Jericho, people expecting him to do something remarkable during the Passover feast which he was attending in Jerusalem at this time. And that expectation was raised even further by his triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday, as described in Matthew 21 and parallel passages, which we looked at at the beginning of this series. It was a tremendous moment of popular acclaim and support and excitement amongst the people. This was, of course, followed quickly the following day by Jesus cleansing the temple and challenging the priesthood and all their corrupt financial practices in the temple. 
that really caused a sensation. And then here we are on the Tuesday, which has been an extended day of debate and discussion between Jesus and his opponents, the elders of the people, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Pharisees. They all make an appearance on this day in some part of that confrontation. Luke describes these days in a helpful way in Luke 21 verses 37 to 38, which I've mentioned on a number of occasions before, but it's a good summary for where we're at. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him in the temple. So here he is in the temple again on this Tuesday and much has happened. There have been a number of different questions asked about his authority and about paying taxes to Caesar. And the Sadducees have just asked a question about the resurrection and the afterlife. Lots of trick questions. Jesus has not been tripped up by any of them. He's outmaneuvered his questioners. And he's also delivered three powerful parables which speak against the religious establishment and their attitude towards him. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and the parable of the wedding banquet. And if you followed earlier episodes in this series, you'll remember those three questions and those three parables that have formed a significant part of what we've been looking at. There's some kind of a conspiracy going on amongst the authorities, as I've mentioned. They're working together, even though there are different factions Amongst them, they all have a common goal, which is to eliminate Jesus. Consider, for example, the comparison of these verses in Matthew chapter 22. First of all, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And then verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. And now, verse 34, the beginning of our passage, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Some kind of a common thread here. They're all trying to trip Jesus up and make him say something that would condemn him or lead him to be handed over to the Romans. Luke 20 verse 20 describes this process. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. That's the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. The governor was in residence in Jerusalem at this time, even though his base was elsewhere in Caesarea. He always came during the religious festivals and took up residence in the military fortress, which was situated right next to the temple in the centre of the city. So we come now to the first section of our passage today which deals with the question that is being asked by some of the Pharisees. 
This is a testing question that they are seeking to ask him. Verse 35 to verse 40 of Matthew 22. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Well, it was often discussed amongst the religious leaders of the day what the greatest commandments were in the Old Testament and in the law of Moses. There were, of course, the central commands known as the Ten Commandments. So were these the greatest laws in the law of Moses? The law of Moses had over 600 laws. Which ones were to be the greatest? Which ones were to help us understand all the other laws? That was a question that the Jews loved to discuss. And there's some evidence outside the Bible that many of the rabbis and teachers had a view of the law very similar to what Jesus actually expressed in his answer. What he does is he doesn't take any of the Ten Commandments to be the greatest laws, which is very interesting. The Ten Commandments are obviously very important. But he chooses two commands that have the central theme of love, the central theme of an inner heart attitude rather than a specific action. Most laws in the Old Testament Mosaic law described specific actions that people needed to take in particular circumstances. Let's look at these two. The first one is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And the full quotation is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This was well-known statement amongst the Jewish people of the time and still is today amongst Orthodox Jews who respect and revere the Lord Moses. This is a call to have a sincere devotion to Yahweh, the God of Israel, with your emotions, with your mind, with your strength, with your will, the whole of your being orientated towards him. And this orientation towards God would lead you to obey his commands. And then the second commandment concerning neighbours is taken from a more obscure part of the Old Testament law, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 18. I'm going to read this statement in its context by reading the whole verse. Jesus quotes only half of it. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. This is a law 
as part of the social legislation of the law of Moses, which helped the Jews to work out how they were to be together in community, in villages, in towns, and how they were going to collaborate together, how they were going to respect each other's families and marriages, what their sexual ethics were going to be, how they were going to deal with quarrels and disputes, with issues over land, with issues over arguments, all sorts of different things are discussed in the social legislation of the law of Moses. But this one is interesting. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. This is speaking of Jewish neighbours. It's basically saying to the Jews how to get on with their neighbours in their villages and towns. Don't seek revenge or bear grudges. Show genuine love and compassion and patience towards your neighbours, especially if they irritate you or if they've done something wrong in your community or in your village. That's the sort of force of that law. However, Jesus has already commented on this law, love your neighbour as yourself. When in discussion with a questioner, as described in Luke's gospel, when he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, series eight and episode eight. What does loving your neighbour really mean? And at that point, Jesus expands the meaning of loving your neighbour as yourself out of the purely neighbourly relationships of fellow Jews, people of the same ethnic background living in the same community, by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, which describes loving somebody who is of a different ethnic group to you, who is far away from you socially, someone who you wouldn't necessarily relate to, when a Samaritan exercises compassion and love towards a Jew he sees stricken on the side of the road. If you're interested in following that teaching up in a little bit more detail, turn to series eight and episode eight. So Jesus's summary of the law is not particularly controversial. It's very similar to what many of the Jews may think, and they may wanted to have asked him the trick question in case he produced something unorthodox or strange that they could then challenge, but he didn't. No, he gave a very simple and straightforward answer. The interesting thing is that in Mark's account, we find out a bit more about the questioner. Now, the questioner has two identities in the New Testament. According to Matthew, he is an agent of the Pharisees who is just the spokesman for their attempt to trip Jesus up with a difficult question or a question that Jesus might answer in an unorthodox way, therefore leading to further difficulties for him. But in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 12, the man who asked the question turns out also to be a spiritual seeker himself. Because in Mark 12, verses 32 to 34, we read, after Jesus has given his answer, Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no one other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then onwards, no one dared ask him any more questions. So the questioner turns out to be a seeker. This is the problem for the religious authorities. They're trying to put a united front on to challenge Jesus in every area. But even people in their own ranks are attracted to Jesus and they're spiritual seekers. We've already seen in John's Gospel how one of the members of the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, called Nicodemus, was a secret seeker after Jesus who became a follower of him. And then another one followed on after that, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. So the difficulty for the religious authorities is that the attractive power of Jesus' teaching is undermining even some of their own people. And even this person who asked the question, which was supposed to be a trick question, was actually a seeker himself. That's a very telling incident. But no one dared to ask him any more questions, according to Mark 12. The questions of the day came to an end. There have been several complicated questions going on during the day. But now Jesus is going to turn the tables. He's going to become the questioner. And our last section in today's episode sees Jesus asking a very difficult question to the Pharisees who had gathered and were trying to trip him up. They'd failed to trip him up by asking him about the greatest commandments. He'd given them a good straight answer with which they would have agreed. He didn't say anything they could claim was unorthodox or unwise or unbiblical. No, he gave a good straight answer to their question. They hadn't succeeded in tripping him up with any style of question that had been given during the day. The Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders of the people are all named as questioners and they've all failed to make Jesus say something unwise or foolish or mistaken. But now their vulnerability and their confusion is going to be revealed very, very powerfully in these next verses, in this next question and answer. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus' question is, who do you think the Messiah is? What's the identity of the Messiah? Now, of course, in asking that question, he's going straight into the area of controversy. Because 
whilst he has been claiming to be the Messiah, they have been denying that he is the Messiah. So he's now searching into this question in a little bit more detail by forcing them to reflect on what the Old Testament says about the Messiah, the Deliverer of Israel. And so he asked them the question, whose son is the Messiah? And they give him the straightforward and much agreed answer. The son of David, they replied. Now, the expression, the son of David, we've seen in the text coming up on a number of occasions, and we've referred to those occasions when they've come up and drawn attention to it. The son of David means a descendant of King David, the divinely appointed king of Israel who founded a dynasty that God promised would continue and have some permanent representative in the long-term future. So it was common for Jews to describe the Messiah as the son of David. You see, David received an amazing prophecy at the time when he became king from the prophet Nathan, as described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God promises through Nathan to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In this way, God was declaring that his own divine kingdom was going to be led by and administered by a biological descendant of David. And when Jesus comes bringing the kingdom of God, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is he a biological descendant of David? And we find from the genealogies, which we looked at at the beginning in series one, that yes, he is through his mother, Mary. And his stepfather, Joseph, also has direct blood connections to the Davidic line. So he is a biological son of David. And the crowds have been increasingly using that title. When he performed one great and wonderful miracle, as recorded in Matthew 12, the crowd said, could this be the son of David? When blind Bartimaeus and his friend were sitting on the side of the road in Jericho and Jesus passed by, they cried out, have mercy on us, son of David. When Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, the crowd spontaneously acclaimed, Hosanna to the son of David. This theme comes up. Jesus is related to David biologically. That talks about his human ancestry. But then Jesus goes on to say, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which is written by David. And Jesus says David was inspired by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's an authoritative, divinely given scripture. And David makes this mysterious statement. The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. Now, if you read Psalm 110, you'll see that it describes a royal figure of authority whom the Lord Almighty appoints to rule for him on earth from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And that, of course, is a description of the Messiah. But that person turns out also to have divine status, to be actually the son of God. And as this verse says, the Lord said to my Lord. David says the Lord God says to the messianic figure, who's also a Lord, divine, sit at my right hand. So there is two divine figures in that verse. God of Israel and his messianic son. So Jesus is basically saying to the Pharisees, the scriptures indicate that the Messiah will both be biologically the descendant of David, humanly speaking, and spiritually the son of God in an eternal relationship with the God of Israel as the divine son of God. And so, in a sense, he's talking about himself and showing that his claims to be the divine son of God and also to be a human descendant of David make him the messianic figure of Israel. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Only if the humanity and the divinity of Jesus come together and he is the divine son of God and the human son of David at the same time. This was a huge challenge to them because the scriptures themselves indicated that their understanding of the Messiah was inadequate. No one could say a word in reply. The questions had come to an end. Jesus had won the argument of the day. In fact, he'd won every argument that had taken place during that day based on the questions that he had been asked. Jesus is controlling the agenda of these days well and truly. He did it on Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry. He did it when he cleansed the temple on the Monday and throughout Tuesday, as we've seen, he's been winning the argument and exposing the hypocrisy and the weakness of his opponents. What reflections can we make as we draw this episode to a conclusion? Well, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength can only be done by loving Jesus as the Son of God and worshipping him in his true identity. Then we can love our neighbours ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, it's important to say that Christianity is based on two affirmations about Jesus. Jesus is the human son of David, the fulfiller of Old Testament prophecies about the Davidic kinship. And he's also the divine son of his heavenly father, the Lord God, the God of Israel. Now, the early church got hold of these realities very firmly. And I'm going to end with a quotation from... Peter, 
on the day of Pentecost, who also quotes this amazing verse from Psalm 110. And he proclaims to the Jews on that day the following things about Jesus in Acts 2, verses 32 to 36. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is an amazing statement, saying that Jesus, having died and been raised again from the dead, has been demonstrated to be the divine son of God, the human son of David, and the one who is going to establish a kingdom that will spread across the world over time. The invitation that he gives to us is that we can be part of that kingdom. Maybe you are part of that kingdom. Maybe you're just thinking about it. Can I encourage you to be part of that kingdom and make Jesus your Lord and Messiah? It says in Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I hope you can join us again for the last episode in series 11, which comes up next. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.